Okay, we'll start. I'm delighted to see you, and we are in the Gospel of Luke. And you should have uh, been able to access the the, uh, outline on Realm, but if you didn't, that's okay. You don't have to. I'm going to walk you through it anyway. But we are in the 14th chapter of Luke at verse 25, so that's where we're going to start in in just a moment. And so the, the beginning of the outline today says the cost of discipleship, very famous passage of Scripture. And so we're going to pray, and that's where we'll start. So if you've got your Bibles and want to go ahead and open them to Luke 14, 25, then we'll begin after I say amen. Father, thank you for this very beautiful day that you've given us. It felt so good outside this morning. We thank you for the changing of the seasons and for what we believe is an end to the intense heat, and we're thankful for that. Now today, we ask that you bless us in our study of the Gospel of Luke. I pray that you would speak to us through the words of Scripture. Uh, Father, if there are things that about which we need to be convicted, I pray that the Holy Spirit will do that. If there are words of encouragement that are needed, then I pray that the Holy Spirit will do that. And uh, Father, we just thank you so much for your precious word. We love the Gospels, and it is a joy and a privilege to see the words of Dr. Luke as he writes about our precious Savior, Jesus. So bless our time now, we pray in the Savior's name. Amen. All right, let's look again. I know that we read verse, uh, I think we read the entire passage last week, but most of us have slept since then, so let's read them again, and uh, that'll be verse 25 of chapter 14, so here we go. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether... He is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Okay, we'll uh, examine these verses. Now, underneath the outline, if you're keeping notes, where it says the cost of discipleship, I'm, I'm going to share with you numbers one through four, okay? So number one is hate family and self. Hate family and self. Jesus has a lot of people walking around with him. And they uh, very loosely have the name disciples. Now, we know that there are the 12, 
who are uh, following Jesus everywhere he goes, and he invests in them and teaching them and instructing them, praying with them, eating with them, fellowshipping with them. But there are a lot of other people called disciples who are walking around with Jesus. But the question is, are they really disciples or are they simply people just walking around with Jesus? So Jesus wants to make sure they understand if you really want to be my disciple and you're not just walking around looking for the next multiplication of the loaves and fish or you're not looking to observe the next casting out of demons or you're not simply looking for me to raise somebody else from the dead or whatever it is. If you're just looking for a little excitement or for your next meal, then you need to ponder what I'm going to say because you're not really a disciple of mine if that's your purpose for following me. So Jesus wants to make it clear. Um, he's not looking to gather a crowd. He is seeking those who will follow him in spirit and truth, but he's not looking for a crowd. If he wanted just a crowd, believe me, he could get it every day by doing another spectacular miracle. But he wants disciples. He wants followers. And I would submit to you today, it's, it's, it's the same Jesus is not looking for people who would simply say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. But he is looking for people who truly follow him, believe in him, trust him as Savior and Lord, live lives of obedience to him, who can really be called his disciples. So the first of the four things in the outline, hate family and self. Now, understand this is a picture, a word picture. A parable, as it were, Jesus is not talking literally about you or I hating our parents or our siblings or our children or our spouse. What he is talking about is Jesus must clearly be number one. He must clearly and consciously be number one in our lives And there can be no comparison between number one and anybody else or anything else. There is no competition for number one in a marriage relationship. That is a microcosmic picture of the same thing in a marriage relationship. A man can't say and be biblical. A man can't say I love three or four women at the same time in a wifely kind of way. He he can't say that. God did not give us the capacity, the ability. And if there's a desire, it's not from him to love more than one woman at a time. It's to be one man, one woman, freely and totally committed to each other. So that's a microcosmic picture of what Jesus is saying. You can only place number one in your life, one person. And Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, that must be me. Now, I would never want anybody to walk away from this passage thinking that Jesus is denigrating the family. Absolutely not. In fact, if we truly love Jesus as we are supposed to love Jesus, there's no contradiction between that love for him and our love for our spouses or our children or our parents or siblings. There is that devotion, 
that God gives us to our relationships with our, our, our loved ones that is unique and special, God honoring and meeting the needs of family. That's special and extraordinary. But when it comes to number one in our lives, that must be Jesus in order for us to truly be his disciples. So there's no contradiction there uh, when it comes to who is number one and who is so important in our earthly relationships. Now, number two, underneath the cost of discipleship is bear your own cross. Bear your own cross. Look again at verse 27. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. That is an invitation to us to join him in suffering. Pick up your cross daily, not just occasionally. Pick up your cross daily and follow him. And that will, in the span of a lifetime, include some days or periods of time of suffering. Now, we don't like to think about that. And nobody here, I've said this before, y'all have heard me say it before, nobody's, if you see a sign over one door that says suffering and another one that says pleasure, you know, not many of us are going to get in the, in the suffering line. We We don't want that to happen. However, What Jesus is saying, if you take up your cross daily and follow him, if you're really his follower, it will involve suffering in life. Um, Advancing the kingdom is sometimes hardship. Sometimes hardship. It may be family persecution, mockery at school misunderstanding at work, or being snubbed in the neighborhood. It can be any of those things. And worse, far worse, but for us in our current American culture, our suffering by and large is not yet physical, but don't relax it appears that it might well indeed be coming. But right now, that suffering is rising in its intensity on a national level. And on a personal level, it has been real forever. That's not, on a personal level, it's not just a function of the political morass that we're in today. It is a function of people following Jesus for 2,000 years, that it involves mockery, it involves being snubbed, it involves hardship of all kinds. And Jesus says it's part of the fabric of being my follower. But remember, it is far outweighed by what he said in John 10.10, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So suffering may come, yes, but don't lose sight of the big picture and of the ultimate destination. We who know Jesus can live life abundantly, and we have an extraordinary place where we will spend eternity. And we anticipate it, 
And until then, we want to be faithful and take up our cross daily and follow him. Now, the third uh, part of this outline under the cost of discipleship is count the cost. Verses 28 to 32, count the cost. Well, that, that makes sense. The illustration Jesus gives, many of you have uh, had the opportunity to build a house during your lifetime. Or probably if not build a house and at least you bought a house, most of you have had that experience. So, you know, you count the cost. You look and you say, well, here's what I have and here's how much the house costs. Can I do it? Can I afford it? Is this where God wants me or us to live? So, so we, we weigh the cost of that place that we'll call our home on earth. So Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, then you just do this. Count the cost. Uh, you know, the price of our salvation is free. He paid the price. But there is a cost involved of following Jesus. So we need to count, we need to count the cost. Let me ask you this. Have you ever had these feelings? If I had known how hard this would be, I would not have done it. Now, I'm talking about anything in life, something that you entered into, you did by choice, you did it. And in the middle of it, you've said, man, if I'd known this was going to be this hard, I wouldn't have done it. I bet both, most of us have been there a time or two and uh, maybe more than a time or two. Well, Jesus is saying, it's not going to be easy to follow me. So, Assess the cost and decide, am I willing to be faithful even when the cost is high, even when it's hard? Would I have taken this job if I had known how hard it was going to be? Would I have, uh, would I have made this move if I had known how hard it was going to be? Would I have spoken up for Christ if I had known what the reaction would be? Count the cost. And uh, then keep going, persevere, no matter what. So that's what Jesus is saying to us. He's really, uh, he's being direct, he's being blunt, but he's also being kind. Jesus is being kind. He said, "Look, uh, I'm not. I don't want you to be blindsided. If you're going to follow me, just know there's going to be some tough times. You're going to people who won't understand you, people who won't like you." People who may snub you, it may affect advancements in your job, potentially. It may affect the way people feel about you at school. For, I don't know that any of us are still in school, but you were there one time. It, it can affect all kinds of things. So Jesus just gives us that heads up, heads up, uh, be ready. Then number four, the fourth thing under the cost of discipleship is very simply the statement, renounce it all. Renounce it all. Verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now, remember the word picture Jesus is giving here. He's not literally commanding you go sell or give away everything you have. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying you must be willing to surrender all you have in order to follow me. 
when we sing the invitation hymn, I surrender all. I wonder how many times we've stopped to think about what we've just said. I surrender all. Or if we were writing, if we were writing the hymn, would we have said, I surrender some, or I'd surrender part. Well, the hymn writer said, I surrender all, and we've sung it. If you've been a churchgoer, you've sung it many times. And the word there means I'm willing to give it all over. I give it all over to Jesus. If he lets me keep all I've got, then thank you, Lord Jesus. If he takes it totally away, thank you, Lord Jesus. I am willing to give it all to you, and I trust you completely. Now, that's, friends, that's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? Think about the implications of that. Lord, I'm willing. I'm going to follow you, and I know you're guiding me. You're watching me. You're taking care of me, and I know where I'm going. I know one of these days I'm going to be in your presence, and I'll be there forever. And eternity's a long time as opposed to my life here, which is a short time. Even if I live to be a 100, it's a short time in the light of eternity. And so, Lord, in the light of what you are going to, where you're going to place me, the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace we sing. Now, he concludes this um, this little section in verse 33 or 34. I like I like the word analogy here. Look at verse 34. Salt is good. Don't tell your doctor that Jesus said that, okay? Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. That's, that's Jesus' word picture that says, pay attention to what I'm saying. Pay attention. So he says to us, stay salty. Stay salty. So, you know, sometimes we say, well, that, that man uses salty language. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying we are the salt of the earth as his followers. So what does that mean? Salt adds flavor. Salt is a preservative. And salt is a healer. And that's all three of those things we are to be as salt. We are to give flavor and zest to life. When the believer walks in the room, we should add flavor and zest to the setting, whatever it may be. Now, you and I know most of us, maybe not everybody, most of us want a little salt on our food. Now, you may be at a point in life where you can't do that anymore, and you've learned to adapt, and you're okay. But, you know, if we can add a little salt in there, it sure does seem to enhance the flavor of whatever it is you're eating. Uh, at this point in my life, I've salt's still part of my diet, but I don't use as much as I used to. I know I shouldn't do that, but mm-mm-mm. Hey, do you know what I did as a kid? Same thing some of you did. I'd pour salt, I'd pour a pile of salt in my hand, the palm of my hand, and I would take the, I'd take this finger and lick it, and then I'd stick it in, and I'd, yeah. Anybody do that other than me? I love salt. 
still do, I could still do that and love it, but I would know I'm hurting myself by doing it. So I'm not going to do that anymore. That's what I did as, as a child. Salt adds flavor. Salt's also a preservative. We don't, it helps to preserve food. Now, in those days when they did not have refrigeration, they would pack uh, meat or anything else that needed to be preserved. They pack it in salt. And that was the best way to preserve something. And salt was seen as a very valuable commodity. We go to the store today, and it didn't cost much to buy one of those cartons of Morton salt. That's pretty inexpensive, relatively speaking. Uh, but in those days, salt was expensive. In fact, sometimes our historical records say that sometimes soldiers would be paid not with money but with salt. Their salary would be paid with salt. And uh, there's not much record of them complaining about that because salt was very valuable. It was a preservative. So we are preservatives. We are to preserve the good, the wholesome, the things of God in a society that desperately needs somebody to preserve those things which are good. That is to be us. And salt is also a healer. You know, a little salt on a wound will cause you to scream bloody murder, but, you know, it it has healing properties that will help. Uh, you're tired of my old stories that I've told, but I've, I've been at the beach a time or two when I had a wound on my foot or my hand, and I'd step in the salt water, and, oh, my goodness, does it hurt. But you know what? It has healing properties, and... Everything turns out okay. Well, salt is healing property, and so do we. We are to be healers in our culture. There should be something healing, a healing balm that comes from the presence and the deeds and the words of followers of Jesus Christ. So I guess that's about all we can say for the moment, but... Um, when I put down the cost of discipleship, I did it intentionally. There are several titles I could have given to those verses, but that probably is what most people who teach it would have done. And it did remind me, I don't know if you can see that. Can you see that? You see that book? It is the cost of discipleship written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you want the best book I think ever written on discipleship. Uh, this is it. If, if you like to read, and we talked about that Sunday, didn't we? Yeah, um, being readers. Um, and I confess my in- incredible sin of reading five books at a time instead of just taking one and finishing it. Well, this is a great book. And if you're looking for something to read on discipleship, cost of discipleship, Dietrich. He's German. You know, what do you expect? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, B-O-N-H-O-E-F-F-E-R. A German Lutheran pastor who in World War II was studying in America, uh, teaching in America, comfortable in America, but he left America and went home to Germany this was before America was involved in the war, uh, went home to Germany so that he could speak out in opposition to Adolf Hitler. And it was very courageous. 
and eventually he was arrested in 1943 for being accused of being part of a plot to overthrow Hitler, and, and he was. And uh, he was hanged in April of 1945, just a few days before Hitler killed himself. Uh, Bonhoeffer was hanged for his, what they call treason. But what an incredible man he was. So that's a book I recommend. Okay, moving on. Chapter 15, The Beauty of Repentance. So I want to begin the passage. Uh, let's get the setting. So I'm going to read two verses. The first two verses just kind of get the setting for the chapter. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So you get the picture of the crowd. Not the highbrows of society, not the sophisticates, but just what it says, tax collectors and sinners. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So that's our setting, setting for the chapter that is about repentance. Repentance means turning around and going in the opposite direction, turning around and going in the opposite direction. And in this chapter, we get three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son, better known I guess to us is the story of the prodigal son. Now let's look again at verse one. Who are the people that we find um, forming the backdrop for this chapter? Tax collectors and sinners. They are drawn to Jesus. Now nobody else wanted to be around them. These are the outcasts of society. Now sinners, you say, well, isn't that everybody? Yes, it is. But in this particular vernacular it means the the gross sinners of the day those who were known to be thieves or or those who were known to be prostitutes and of course tax collectors were hated oh my goodness if you wanted to be hated just sign up to be a tax collector now most tax collectors would have been pretty well to do because the romans would set the tax rate put a Roman guard with them, set them up in a public place. They collect the taxes, and the tax collector was allowed to practice extortion. If your tax rate, let's just throw a figure out, if you if you owed $100 in taxes, the tax collector could charge $120 if he wanted to, more if he wanted to. And you had to pay it, and you knew that $20 of that was going to line his pockets. And so in Israel, those tax collectors were by and large almost totally Jewish. So they were looked at as traitors, and they were. They served the Romans, and so they weren't going to win any popularity contest. So you had to be in it strictly to get rich. You sure weren't in it to win friends and influence people. But in the hollowness of their hearts, Something tugged at those tax collectors and sinners when they heard Jesus and when they heard about Jesus. Somebody who's willing to speak to us, somebody who's willing even to befriend us or to call on us to follow him. And so the tax collectors and sinners, these ostracized people of society, 
were drawn were drawn to Jesus. And, and and so these ostracized people, ostracized from Jewish life, um, Matthew would not have been allowed in the temple. Levi, when he was practicing being a tax collector, he was utterly despised. And so they had chosen to live a dishonorable life. But Jesus appealed to the part of them that said, there is hope for me. I have not yet committed the unpardonable sin in a, in a manner of speaking. And so many of these tax collectors and sinners would gather around and listen to the words of Jesus, and many of them, many of them, their lives were being changed. Now, there's a problem that's introduced to us in verse two, and the problem is is the Pharisees and the teachers who who hated Jesus. Now, did every Pharisee hate Jesus? No, uh, Nicodemus didn't, and there were others who didn't, but by and large, the, the Pharisees had chosen. To despise Jesus. Nicodemus didn't hate him either, did he? But they hated the fact that the outcasts of society were coming to him, increasing his numbers and following him. So in this text, there is an intentional, on the part of Luke, an intentional negative sense to the term Pharisees and teachers. It's purposefully so. God in the flesh has come for sinners. And and he receives the outcast. And he actually has the audacity to eat with them. Jesus draws the broken and the contrite. Now, we know better than to think too highly of ourselves. What are you and I before we come to Christ? Well, we're sinners. May not be a prostitute, may not be a thief, but I'm still a sinner, desperately in need of a Savior. And and so the Holy Spirit begins to call and woo and draw. You come under that conviction, yes, I am a sinner, and I need a Savior, and it's Jesus. And we reach that point where we declare, yes, Jesus is Lord. Forgive me of my sin. Be my Savior. I'm going to follow you the rest of my life. So Jesus draws the broken and the contrite. Does, Does Jesus draw the proud those who think so highly of themselves that they say, I don't need a Savior? I don't know if there's something that the Holy Spirit says to them or not, but what I do know is it's like a brick wall, a barrier that is not broken down. And so these Pharisees are complaining, trying to hinder the sinners from reaching Jesus, Someone, I read something somebody said the other day. Satan's true masterpiece is the Pharisee, not the prostitute. The the Pharisee who opposed Jesus, not the prostitute. 
pretty strong words. Well, the, the grumbling that went on among them, the, the grumbling provides the contrast, I think, for three parables. So having said all that, then let's, uh, let's look at the section I've entitled, Why Repent? And the first division is, we are of great worth to God. Now, let me talk about repentance for just a moment. Repentance is a great word. It is a great word. It's not a negative word. Sometimes in societal conversations, people will mock the word repentance, particularly as it pertains to the words of Jesus or Christians who who call for repentance. They'll mock the word. It is not a negative word, and it is not a word to be not mocked. It is not an unpleasant word that we think, think we have to bring up when we're witnessing. And yes, we do bring it up when we're witnessing, but it is not a negative word. It is a positive word that brings joy in heaven when it's practiced. When there is repentance, there is joy in heaven. There is nothing like the celebration of a soul turning from sin to God. There's nothing like it. So, having said that, we are of great worth to God. So let's read verses 3 to 7. We are of great worth to God. And here's that first parable. It's a parable of the lost sheep. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. It's definitely a parable because everybody needs to repent, but you know what he's saying. He's looking around, and there are the Pharisees and the scribes, so so forth, so forth. They don't see a need to repent. But there's the one, the tax collector, the sinner, the one who does see his or her need to repent. And the joy in heaven comes not from the 99 who don't think they need repentance. The joy in heaven comes from the one who repents. Now, this is a fantastic picture. It's a little brief little parable, but I, I just love it. You don't have to come from a shepherd society to understand this. Jesus is teaching the value of one. He's teaching the value of one. God goes after the one who is lost. He treasures that person. He finds him, draws him, wins him, carries him home, and throws a party. That's the scriptural parabolic way that Jesus has of saying, I love you. That's why I spoke to you. That's why I drew you. That's why I called you. And when you gave your heart to to Jesus, there was such joy and celebration in heaven that you can hardly imagine. So the 99 righteous obviously are referring to the Pharisees. The one is referring to the lost person, the sinner, 
The 99 see no need of repentance. The one is desperate to be found, and his repentance brings joy in heaven. You are valued by God, and don't you ever forget it. Don't ever say, I think God's forgotten me. No, he hasn't. I know we go through tough times, and I know there may be times when we wonder, where, where is God? I don't, I'm not, I'm, he's not with me at this point. Yes, he is. He's there. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. But just remember, he proved his love for you when he called you to himself. You were that one. And he pursued you and drew you to himself, whether it was when you were a kid or when you were a young adult or maybe an older adult. Whenever it was, he demonstrates his love for us. As Paul says in Romans, he demonstrated his love for us in this while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And you can change that to be Jesus died for me because he did. That's how much he loves you. So uh, we are of great worth to God. Second parable, parable of the lost coin, I've entitled that, Repentance Brings Joy to God. Repentance Brings Joy to God. So look at verse 8, 9, and 10. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until... She finds it. Now, understand, um, the, the translation here, a silver coin, the coins were drachmas, and each drachma would have been worth about a day's wage. So we're not talking about a Lincoln penny. We're talking about something significant. And that's exactly the picture Jesus is trying to drive home. He's not trying to say, you've got to be worth 10 drachmas to, for me to bother to find you. What he's saying is, in my sight, you are worth a lot. Therefore, I'm going to sweep the house. I'm going to do everything I can until I find you and draw you to myself. That's the picture he's trying to give. Now, verse 9, and when she finds it, She calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This passage, this parable, is where we get the picture of the angels in heaven rejoicing when somebody gives their heart to Jesus. So if somebody gets saved on a Sunday and the pastor says, Praise God, the angels in heaven are rejoicing. You're not just making a guess. You're stating a certainty. Yes, they are rejoicing in heaven over one who repents. Now, this is a joyful chapter, chapter 15. Uh, you look back at verse 5 and 6 that we read it a minute ago. He, he joyfully puts the sheep on his shoulder, goes home, and, and says, Come and rejoice over my sheep that I found. And in verse 9 right here, she rejoices over finding the coin. Verse 10, you get to verse 23 where we'll be momentarily and and what happens when the prodigal comes home? The dad throws a party, kills the fatted calf, and brings his, invites his neighbors to come. So this is a joyful chapter, and it's all about the joy of one who repents. So heaven rejoices, and we as believers share in that joy now and in eternity. 
So assuming you get to heaven before Jesus comes again, if that if that's the way it occurs, there are going to be parties every day <laughs> in a manner of speaking. Well, how do I know that? Well, it says heaven rejoices whenever someone gives their heart to Jesus. So because we know people around the world are getting saved every day, there's going to be one big continuous party in heaven where people rejoice. There's another one in Texas. There's another one in, in Africa. There's another one in Europe. Rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing. It's going to be pretty exciting. Uh, I hope you know heaven's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be exciting. It's not going to be you being a little pudgy angel sitting on a cloud strumming a harp. Wherever that picture came from, put it out of your mind. We're going to have a wonderful time in heaven, and a whole lot of that time is going to be rejoicing over those who give their lives to Christ. Now, angels, Old Testament theology reflects the fact that angels reflect the heart of God. Angels reflect the heart of God. So here the angels rejoice over the fact that God pursues the one, the individual, and it is a reminder, you are that important to God that he would pursue you, and and, and God pursues and then celebrates and then continues to invite others to come to him. So heaven rejoices, Christians rejoice, uh, sadly the Pharisees do not. Now, we come to the next passage, and that is um, repentance, uh, well, it's the story of the prodigal son. I've broken it down to several parts. So here's the next part, verses 11 to 16, sin destroys. This is the parable of the lost son, parable of the prodigal son, whatever you want to call it. So let's read, beginning with verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, understand, we may not see the gravity of this initially. This was a horrific thing for this boy to do. Not a boy, he's a young man. It is an insult to his father. It's an insult to the family. It is uh, an insult to society. For in those days in a, a Jewish society, the estate is not divided until the death of the father. And it was an insult for the younger son to make this request of his father. In fact, friends, he was in effect, by doing this, he was in effect looking his father in the face, eyeball to eyeball, and saying, why don't you just drop dead? That's what he's saying to his dad. Why don't you just drop dead so I can have what's mine? But since it doesn't look like you're about to drop dead, I want it now. Now, that father, I no doubt, was brokenhearted. And that maybe the words that we read don't totally reflect that. But he had to be brokenhearted. But as the father, it was, as the patriarch of the family, it was his right to say, no, sir. I will not do it. And if that means you want to leave home, go ahead. But I'm not giving you anything at this time. Instead, 
he asked for his share of the estate and the father did it. He divided his property and gave the son, the younger son, what would have been his had the father actually passed away. Verse 12, uh, verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. It was his intent all along. His intent was not to lose it all, but it was to go and live a sinful life. That's, that's what he intended to do. Have fun, he thought. After he spent everything, I get that picture, after he had spent everything, not some of it, not part of it, all of it, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, I simply point out to you how this young man had hit rock bottom. He is a Jewish young man feeding pigs. That's how low he had sunk. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, well, let's stop there. I want to stop right there. Let's stop at verse 16. I've entitled that part, Sin Destroys. Look what it did to this boy. It'll do the same thing to you and me. Sin is a destroyer. We see it in the prodigal. The prodigal had a steady decline, a precipitous decline into sin and the squalor that goes with it. His request of his dad was an insult, his way of saying, I wish you were dead. Why did he do that? He had, I mean, he had access to everything. At that point in time, his dad was taking care of him. He was serving his dad and whatever was being done, whether it's shepherd or a farmer, whatever it was he was doing, this young man never lacked for food. He never lacked for clothing. He had everything that he needed. And yet he wanted to be out from under the authority of his dad. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. And so as an ungrateful young man and as an impatient young man, he suddenly makes himself himself fatherless, he makes himself homeless, and he ends up penniless and foodless and friendless. You think he knew where all that was heading ahead of time? No, I don't think so. We don't think about the consequences of sin. We just want to do it, enjoy it. We don't think about the outcome. This young man didn't think. If he had known he was going to end up feeding pigs, believe me, he'd have stayed home. That's what sin does. So he ended up fatherless, homeless, penniless, friendless, and foodless. And he wallows in the pig pen. Unthinkable. Unthinkable for a Jewish young man who once had the privilege that he had. You heard of rags to riches stories? Well, this is a riches to rags story. 
he slides into squalor. He slides into loneliness. I bet he had all the so-called friends a person could desire when he was wealthy. But as he began to lose it all, his friends began to drift away. And when he was poverty-stricken, there weren't any friends anymore. All they were doing were using him. They weren't really his friends. They just used him. And now they're gone. If you live for yourself, you'll soon find yourself living by yourself. And I don't mean physically you're a widow or widower. That's not what at all I'm talking about. I'm talking about you're by yourself because nobody wants to have anything to do with you. That's what happened to him. No friends to help him out. So here is living apart from God. That's what it will do for you. Sinners want the goodness of God's creation and the enjoyment of God's blessings, but they do not want God. But life apart from God is a slow death. Now, let's look at verse 17. Do you think we have? No, we don't. Okay. Wow. Where does time fly when you're having fun? Well, I'm having fun. I don't know if you are or not, but I'm having fun. So we're going to start there next time. Um with verse 17, sin is insanity. It is. Sin is insanity. So that's where we start next time. Verse 17, we'll finish up the story of this uh, prodigal son and uh, move on then into chapter 16 and another fascinating. Have you always enjoyed the story of the rich man and Lazarus? That's the next chapter. We'll get there next time. Well, God bless you. I love, I love being with you. Um, Can you believe tomorrow is October? My goodness, how time flies. So I'll see you next Wednesday. You're welcome to, after I pray, you're welcome to stay on a while and visit if you'd like. Don't forget to unmute yourself if you want to talk. And um, I'll stay on a little bit. Then I've got another meeting shortly, so let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for the scripture that tells us that you care about each one of us as if we were the only one. You care for the individual. You care about me. You care about everybody on this screen. And you drew us to yourself, saved us, forgave us, gave us eternal life. And we are so thankful. I pray, Father, you'll bless us today as we seek to be a reflection of the love of Christ before others. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, love you. God bless you.